Welcome to this week's episode of London Heal. I am your host, Tatiana Kasesanov. This week, we're going to slip over into our second episode with Igor Krufayev. If you didn't listen into the first episode, I highly recommend you do that. It's listed as the spiritual nature of healing. In this week's episode, Igor is going to talk to us more about the general topic of spirituality, why people are searching and seeking, and what a person who is one of those seekers can do, what, what's going on, what, what triggers this process, and how can they best guide it. We also talk about the rise of the feminine powers that we see in the world around us and how we can understand that on a spiritual level. And Igor talks a lot more about a lot more interesting things, and I'm not going to say any more so that you'll tune in, listen, and enjoy. And now over to the episode. We've talked now a lot about um, of spirituality, consciousness in terms of looking at it in terms of illness, but I would like to move a little bit more away from illness and just into the exploration of consciousness. Now, as I mentioned, I mean, a lot of people find their doorway into, into this path for all the reasons that you just so beautifully and eloquently described. Um, However, as we said right at the very beginning, there are a lot of people who are who are searching, who are searching for something. And we live in a pretty secular society. There's 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 the, these structures that we have grown up with um, are beginning to break down. So, of course, a person can go through the classical route of, of going to a religious organization. But where does the seeker, where does the seeker who's in this position, perhaps it is somebody who's very sick and they recognize there's something deeper going on here. Um, of course, they would likely search out healers. But even for a seeker who's, who's maybe not ill, where, where is a good place for them to start? How, how does somebody, I mean, it's overwhelming out there and it's a jungle and I, I think this is something which again is very important how does how does somebody start to see the wood from the trees because there's a lot of trees out there good question well on one hand of course it's from culture to culture and from certain, let's say, more privileged setup. Some people immediately run into some situations where that what they need would be offered to them in the form of a casual encounter, which will lead them yet to another encounter. I'm just speaking about this in, in very simple day-to-day -day terms without some kind of a referential point of network right where one can go google and one should trust always should have and build up and maintain and hone that inner trust that one is guided in life it's one of the fundamental principles of how to live one's life in fact it is needed more so when we are confronted with 
what could be termed as failures as opposed to success, disappointments, breakdowns, conflicts. At those moments, it's very easy to turn the that kind of you know into that victim-based, victim-oriented attitude. But if we develop this ability to simply recognize that from the moment we came into the being, there is this subtle guidance offered already. I don't want to start speaking uh, in, in some kind of mystical or religious terms of how that is in relation to the soul, but let us just maybe introduce this perspective that human birth is a very precious affair. And despite of this utter inequality of what this human affair now represents and perhaps have been represented down the ages, there is also something that goes into the making of who we are. So every experience, if we subtract that experience from that what goes into the making of us, would of course undermine that what essentially was the building block of our personality here, what went into the making. In spiritual terms, this is a very important affair because the utmost perspective in spirituality is to lay down the burden of that accumulated individuality, is to offer it back into that what is the unified field of that, the ultimate divine essence of who we are. But we cannot do that if we haven't fully developed or fully claimed that what went into the making of then what would help us to realize what would be that important, if you will, setup. Every, every mystic, they say, before they claim their divine essence, there were these years, decades of longing, of, of experiencing the agony of separation. And that's basically applicable to every one of us. It's applicable to every one of us. It's just in certain examples, certain classical examples that stand colossal in this or that culture. But that same longing, that same rupture of separation, that agony that is born out of living not in a state of union, is that's what our life is marked. That's what we experiencing. This is an existential affair. And all we're doing here, irrespective of what the field of action we place our attention into, ultimately, we are looking for the ways of that reconciliation. 
it may seem for someone like, oh no, that you know, that's not what I'm doing. You know, for me, it's more important, you know, this and that. I've got other things to do now. I'm sorry, all this is. Yes, it may seem so, but only, only in the sense that our attention is simply being eclipsed by the temporal, whereas the existential is still there. We just go about it in a different ways. And the birth of the spiritual, if you will, seeker, finder, wayfarer, is precise realization that I want to find out what this is really all about. I want to find out. I have no choice. I, I have to find out. It can come very early on, and it's great when it happens. It can come as late as the final years of one's life. There is no recipe here. There is no white brush to paint everyone in. No etalon of measure to apply. So when it comes to this, well, but it seems to me simply this felt as an invitation to speak to this, to speak to this that that innate wisdom of knowing that we are guided already creates that quantum wave, if you will, that sets something in motion. Then in very often among the spiritual teachers and perceptors, it's called intention setting. We are advised, we are asked, to set intentions. And that intention is, if you will, a modern form of a prayer. It's a modern contemporary men's, women's prayer. In the time of when we're living in largely secularized society, as you have pointed out, when that dialogue, that conversation with God is so much more difficult for us to master because we may no longer be privy culturally. We, we may no longer have these uh, subtle uh, tentacles of, of how to you know, pull the right emotional string here. But it doesn't mean that we are not connected. We are always connected to the divine because we are that divine field which at some time, sometimes simply kind of goes into a state of homeostasis. And we begin to feel as if we are no longer experiencing that connection and live, as it were, a very solitary affair. That very solitary affair becomes so solitary that we begin to feel separated, cut off, isolated, fragmented. So the spiritual journey is simply reclaiming that sense of totality, sense of union, sense of connection, in, when speaking in simple terms. So that intention is that modern way of communicating, setting or sending out these subtle vibrations of how do I go from here? What's my next step? What is required of me? What is asked of me? What do I do? 
delegating oneself, surrendering oneself, accepting oneself. And so we are now entering into this um, lexicon, the vocabulary of spiritual teachers, perceptors, psychologists, right? We're entering that vocabulary where one would be guided, essentially, nowhere but inwardly. One would be guided towards one's own self. So that first intention setting, you know, where do you begin? How do you go about it? Is to begin to ask what really, really one desires for oneself. It requires sincerity. It requires to be vulnerable to the moment of really asking what one really wants as opposed to what one ought to ask. So, and then in, in, in the same mythological or uh, scientific, whichever preference we want to adopt here, the heaven begins to answer. The heaven, our own heaven, our own stratosphere begins to resonate with these sudden encounters, with sudden guidance. That guidance can be, if it's profound, it can usher this inner unfoldment where we, of course, will be guided. And, you know, I'm not at all advocating here the DIY style, which is another side of a spiritual world today. A lot of people prefer the DIY style. Assemble it yourself. That kind of IKEA spirituality, <laughs> where you have no uh, need to call for any qualitative guide, as long as you have manual how to put it all together and bits are provided. But we don't want to deny the possibility that there are some cases of profound inner revelations. But for the majority of us, we do need to have that helpful guide, which can essentially shorten the path and the agony of that separation, because we cover tremendous grounds very much, much, much faster. By delegating this, what seems unbridgeable somehow for ourselves. But one way or the other, and this is also very important barometer, very important. Um, how do we, where do we draw the line of trust? It's, it's all with reference to our experiences, with reference to where are we taken? If we are taken deeper into ourselves, then we must be doing something right here. Because this journey of reclaiming who we are is a literally, literally all there is. It cannot be done in, in any kind of a way where we hold hands and you know, it's, we hold hands, but <laughs> we're doing it together. But this is where the beauty, beauty, as well as maybe that uncompromising nature of that process, because really there are two types of solitude and solitary. 
One is that is a result of separation where we feel isolated and fragmented even in the company of people. When we feel divided and alone even amidst of a party, amidst of a festival, a happening, a group. And another kind of solitary realization is when we essentially recognize everything to be indivisible, indivisible part of our own self. It's two, two poles, if you will, extremes of that, what that solitary affair represents. And this is what I meant, that reclaiming who we are, often also spoken of as the healing of consciousness, is really what this is all about. Because it's not only um, our duty and responsibility, it's above all else the greatest gift that we carry when we come into this world, because it is available to a human being. Everything else, other species, it's speculation. We don't know if it's available to elephants, dolphins, and other creatures, other mammals, but it is available to human beings. So therefore we ought to carry that gift, you know, with that degree of, of recognition of what that gift represents. And then what do we do with our life when that once that realization is really dawned, is really not that important. It will be simply whatever will be required of us, of us. Wonderful. Wow. <laughs> Another subject that I, I really wanted to talk to you about because I, I see it happening and I, I don't know if I'm drawing the wrong conclusions or the right conclusions. I'd be just interested to see your perspective is that one part of the teachings that, that you um practice and the tradition that you uphold is very much a focus of the marriage of the divine masculine and the divine feminine. And if we look at, a, at the way our society and culture has gone, I mean, I think it's impossible for anyone to deny that we have lived in a very made, uh, patriarchal, male-dominated society. And, and I view that as an essential part of our evolution because men tend to get stuff done. So, you know, our, our constructs for the, the uh, survival of the species, if you like, have, have been put in place. And, but I think we're also beginning to very much on so many levels understand that this may have had its purpose, but the balance has to tip. And I wonder when I look around and I see things like the Me Too movement and I see presidents who stand up and say things which raises the back of, of, of the hairs on the back of people's necks and makes them stand up and start talking about these subjects and bringing these topics to conversation. I feel like the feminine is beginning to come up in society. I'd love to hear your opinions on that, brought back perhaps to a more spiritual... It's a huge question, I know, but... <laughs> yeah, well, yes, it's it's a... It's a big, very big 
topic and and I have spoken to that um, going back five, six, seven years because it simply became very much a shared message of many peers in the field who felt that way that the rise of the divine feminine is inseparable or rather the rise of the divine feminine and looking or seeking for solutions to the dilemmas we are faced with collectively are not two different affairs with that being said it's very easy to fall victim to certain continued polarization with which this this very complex um, topic is being viewed because if we see this only in terms of how the let's say emancipation of women or the feminine feminism as a movement if we begin to see this as the social signs of the rise of the divine feminine we might be in danger of completely and utterly misunderstanding what this is all about and although definitely we have been going through a prolonged phase of that more patriarchal systems and structures when or if we are to lean on this more perennial understandings if we are to look into these perspectives that are present in certain traditions which speak of that divine feminine as inseparable part of the transformative methodology as the tantra does for example as a spiritual um, as a philosophy and spiritual set of spiritual practices which um, as you know uh, i use as an umbrella for my own work then what is spoken of as divine feminine has very little to do with gender so that patriarchal phase is applicable to absolutely everything and it's not necessarily what that what we observe in the field of social interactions that necessarily gives us the most visceral insights into the rise of that divine feminine because what i on the other hand begin to witness that there is this conversation in the social media of course or mostly is being veered towards and in favor of that what more more comes under the category of this uh, war between the sexes mm -hmm. i'm using this in inverted commas that continuous war continuous um, well, it continues in the same vein of polarization.
the divine feminine here, if we are to if we are to borrow tantric understanding, it's all there is in a sense, it's energy. It's the world as we know it. It's self-reflective quality of awareness. It's the quality of awareness that throws its own light back onto itself. Ultimately speaking, that's what divine feminine as Shakti represents. And everything, everything, the whole entire cosmos is the manifestation of that divine feminine. So there is no such thing as men and women in that. This genderization is what divides us as individuals. And then as a result, it divides these social structures in favor of certain domination, which is always born out of fear, always born out of misunderstanding how everything is being upheld together. So that divine marriage that um, you've used as a term, which I use in, in my own work, that union, that embrace of the divine masculine and the divine feminine is that balance, equilibrium between awareness and how awareness expresses itself as this world. So, yes, there are certain, certain manifestations in the world where we're experiencing this rise of the divine family. But if we are somehow tempted or in certain cases manipulated subtly to recognize this in certain ongoing conversations that have been going on and only have um, that still the same old paradigm of dividing us as beings, then that's not really what divine feminine here represents and cannot. There is, I would even suggest something else, simply as a food for thought for all of us, is that we may in this um, excitement of changes in attitudes, collectively speaking, we might also in danger of completely missing the unique position, unique in a sense of what in this case, being born with the male and the female body represents. What is it really represents here in terms of the spiritual aspect of ourselves? And I have been observed or I have been observing over the decades and living, having lived and having born in Central Asia and lived in, in Europe, like I, I was a Londoner since my mid-20s and traveled quite a bit. So I have been observing these various tendencies where the very feminine qualities 
are begin to be viewed with contempt. There is this race and this urge in that for the equality of the genders begins to kind of place a heavy weight on, on what the very, very neurophysiology of woman represents, where simultaneously with that, with that emancipation, we also can see a gradual degradation of the divine masculine where men no longer know, no longer know and understand what it means and what it represents. So this is what we touched upon, what we really tackling here is so, so vast and so profoundly subtle and we cannot just simply brush it kind of inside and okay, now we've been living in the centuries of patriarchal domination and this is due to the fact that men usurped the power and dominated you know, the women in certain cultures to such degree that make them citizens of the second class, you know, sub subjugating them, subduing them, usurping their freedom. This is a misunderstanding. And suddenly now women coming to hold more important positions and social positions, gov governing positions, heads of states, CEOs, and so forth. This is not at all to me the sign of the rise of the sacred feminine or divine feminine. This to me is rather a manifestation of the same, same, or rather the trajectory of the same old paradigm. Because that suppression of women in many, many countries, in many cultures was a outward manifestation of the suppression of the feminine within. So it's not just how men treated women as it were. It's how men treated, how humanity treated itself, we should say. And the only way to come out of that crisis is to understand the complex divine essence of who we are of how these energies beautifully act and interact within every human being. That without that, finding that equilibrium and balance within where the masculine and the feminine are held in oneness, in totality of one's being. And then uniquely expressing itself through that particular gender is perhaps our job rather than sort of uh, supporting that uh, collectively held agenda that also becoming very, very hot, hot topic. And, you know, one had to be very, very careful because everything one says here would be interpreted as politically incorrect statements. But, you know, the, it's no wonder that this or that president, you know, come up with certain uh, bizarre statements because it's only a display of the collective state of affairs. The heads of states are nothing but in the expression of the collective 
state of consciousness of this or that nation, of this or that culture. So really, why to wonder? From this perspective, if you will, from the perspective that we work from, if we are to give too much attention to all these bizarre manifestations and examples, it can only detract us from the real work. But the real work is always within. Where is that balance of the divine masculine and divine feminine taking place within myself? And whether this divine feminine is being still suppressed, is it still being suppressed or repressed? That's the question. So again, it takes us back to that internal perspective because, well, whether we like it or not, but yogic perspective, tantric perspective, or perennial perspective, any perennial wisdom traditions speaks from that know thyself, that very ancient Greek line, right? Know thyself. So that knowing thyself here is an internal affair. One cannot know oneself through the way one is instructed through what is being reflected back onto oneself. One can only know oneself in terms of how the whole world is being perceived. Because we are not defined by others, but others are defined by virtue of our perception. So it takes us back to the necessity of doing our internal work, one way or the other. That's where it always comes back to. I see that um, I've, I've held you for so long and I could, as I said, speak to you all day. I have a million questions, but I have to limit them. One last question, perhaps, um, on this on this more general topic. I really would sincerely love for you to come back and, and for us to talk more about the process of awakening and things, but I think that's a huge conversation that belongs, um, demands its own time. Um, but you you talked, you ended that last um, discourse with, with that powerful statement that the work is always within. And another thing that strikes me, is that we live in a society these days where everybody wants to fast track everything. Um, people want to go and become spiritually enlightened in a weekend or with an online course or whatever, whatever. And I, I never know really how to, how to view that. I mean, on the one hand, I feel like anybody who goes down the path in any way, shape or form is already walking in the right direction and it certainly shouldn't be criticized. But I do sometimes have a sense of, you know, where everybody's, certainly in the field of personal development, for example, where everybody's trying to be the best that they can be and leave their best lives and earn millions and millions of dollars in, in two weeks uh, uh, online or whatever. That you know, one of the things you always see is this, you know, set of practices, spiritual practices, which accompany your path to success. And it's your two minutes of meditation or five minutes and, and your journaling and this and the other. And, and I wonder, you know, this, sometimes I get the feeling that this is done with a lot of discipline, but perhaps less devotion. 
um, I'd just be interested to to hear your opinion on that, maybe as a as a wrap up. Well, yes, it's uh, it's another pertinent one. It's very it's paramount to really to the time we live in, as everything becomes or feels at least. Um, there's this sense of quickening, and with that sense of quickening, with that more rapid pace, it would only be natural that everything that we do, and this also goes for all our aspirations, right? All that we wish to achieve need to be done in the quickest, fastest possible way. So in itself, this is understandable. And maybe not and shouldn't be um, commendable because who is to say uh, whether this in itself is driven by some necessity? So maybe the silver lining of that uh, is that we do experience this urge, urge, even if this urge comes from far from altruistic, but mostly driven by this very, very um, egotistical, egoic perspective, drive to accumulate, acquire, right? Get hold of, um, whether it's a position in the society, position in the world, status, and ultimately, of course, now enlightenment is it's, it's a genie out of the bottle. So it doesn't even matter how successful you are, you've got to be enlightened, right? Because the, the, the game is being pushed, right? The frontier is being pushed further now, which maybe it's a good, good thing, right? Why not? It's certainly a good thing because if this inspires young people to achieve what is the, the greatest and loftiest aspiration, then certainly it's more than just uh, wanting to be the great football player or a great uh, scientist, right? So I'm just first giving that positive spin on, on this tendency to, right, for that everything instant tendency for having quick gratification as well. Now, what is, what is it really taking place here? And maybe we should borrow um, examples from each. Maybe we should just look at it and just simply examine it from how things are in nature. And when it comes to the quality of experience, since you touched up on already that the success and with the success, there is a possibility for having a greater choice of what's available. But as soon as people begin to have, let's say, a greater variety of what money can buy, then there is a great a choice in terms of how one can um, appease, let's say, one personal sense of taste in every manner. And this is becoming now trickier because we know that 
A good wine takes years to mature. We know that um, olive grows on a tree. Uh, it takes several months for it to mature, and it's a long process. Fruit for it to be sweet cannot be speed up in any um, well in any orchard in any kind of simulated stimulated environment because it will take that many months from the blossom right that many weeks maybe from the blossom to a perfectly ripe peach or mulberry so language of nature we're speaking about here certain things simply take time and we cannot view this process of spiritual ripening and unfoldment outside of that either and although there are expedient ways of how this can unfold but even that that usually as a norm if examined closely enough a result of something that has been done methodically for a prolonged period of time so it reached that point where it's simply ready to fall off the tree because the fruit is ready not because someone someone have shaken the tree enthusiastically enough so this is where i suggest to view this perspective so yes of course there are many many uh, methodologies that claim many techniques that claim to be more direct which is also true when we when it comes to spiritual practices when it comes to consciousness harnessing or consciousness hacking practices some certain methodologies bear fruits in a better way and faster than others this goes also without saying i mean we cannot just again be too too placid about this and uh, be too tolerant in the sense of like well it doesn't matter as long as you constant no no that's not my experience my experience is that some people if they're not introduced to haven't been introduced to certain more advanced methodologies they will end up fiddling their thumb when it comes to let's say getting to know that inner stillness when it comes to meditation so one can learn meditation but how then that what one learned or learns begins to give one that direct and visceral experience what it ought to bring at the same time that analogy of certain things take time and takes place in time although it's beyond time and we also hear that this uh, very very reassuring discoveries that apparently the past the future and the present all happens at once in this quantum universe that it's kind of interesting to contemplate this of course and yet when it comes to our neurophysiology this is where we subject to the realm of time and certain ripening takes time 
and for good reason as well. So I don't know if, if, if this is really uh, something that some people will object to and prefer to hear another perspective, but that balance between understanding that certain things, things will take time and therefore pacing oneself within that what will take time, whilst also, also maintaining that fervent attitude, the fervent attitude that is characterized by wanting it to such degree that it brings it closer, that it makes it more intimate. And within, within spiritual traditions which understood these dynamics of that which will take in time, because what takes time here, the culturing of the nervous system, freeing of the nervous system of the impositions, balancing, removing the blocks and abstractions and stresses and traumas. So the nervous system can vibrate and experience this very, very fine frequency. At the same time, not to lose that fervent attitude for that whole process not to become stale or boring, uneventful. And this is where the dynamic is. So therefore, of course, I mean, this may sound um, as being biased by what I do, but if I don't mention that, then I don't do my job properly. Yes, for that reason, people should go to spiritual retreats. They should go and seek um, company of the wise. They should spend time with those where that acceleration becomes a possibility. It, it goes absolutely hand in hand in the evolution of one's soul. And it's not as like this weekend will set someone free or that workshop. Will, it, it's never like that. The expanding, the way, the way the system frees itself and expands, there are so many layers that are being peeled off. And as the greater vistas of our internal, internal landscape begins to unveil, we begin to realize that there is virtually no end to it. There's no end product where we could say that this is now I'm done. Maybe I'm done to a certain degree. There are certain questions lay asunder, there are certain realizations that make me much more equipped to live this life in that more optimum state, which is no longer being thwarted each time, you know, I'm encountering certain conflicting situations and life is not like I wish like life would be. But this balance between wanting it so fervently and at the same time realizing also that life here is a journey to enjoy. It's this spiritual work is not to be seen as some kind of um, application into some kind of, you know, that it's rather 
bringing the two separate realms, uh, my world, the world, the real world, and my intimate spiritual world. Because really spiritual is intimate. What is spiritual? It's that what is the most intimate. Is who we are in the essence. But how can one define who one is? So therefore, another term for it is that intimate affair with oneself. Whatever ideas and notions one has about oneself, that's what defines one's as a spiritual being. So therefore, spiritual or intimate. It's how intimate we are with ourselves. Sometimes that intimacy is so thin, it wears itself out. And this is where we suddenly feel we are no longer living in that, we're no longer anchored in who we are. So the need rises to reevaluate, reconnect, rewire. But when that, in, that intimacy could, could grow to such degree that one literally feels oneself to be the world, and there's no lacking whatsoever. Yes, there is still the world without all its demands that imposes on us. But it's not at the cost of subtracting or adding anything into that what already feels itself as the walking universe. So, I don't know. Maybe it's good that there is this propensity for everything. I spoke about it very often with critical perspectives. Maybe I should speak about it in, in, a, in a more tolerant and a kind of a positive perspective. And just to add that as long as it is accompanied by that understanding that it's, we cannot trick something here because what we're dealing is with consciousness. And consciousness is our own self. So that cannot be tricked. And yes, that self of non-self, that sense of non-self, that egoic self, that superimposition wants to trick. It's a trickster, just a trickster. It wants to be in control and constantly trick. Yes, of course, it, it always runs ahead of experience what it can get out, what it can extract from it, what it can pocket how it can benefit. Okay, let it run its course. So that's what I feel about it. Wonderful. I think perhaps that's a, that's a great point to, to wind down. Um, as I said, there's still so much more I, I want to talk to you about, so you have to come back. Um, there are three little questions I always ask all of my guests somehow. They seem a little trite <laughs> with you, but I'd still like I'd still like you to answer them. Um, when I talk about mind, body, spirit, I like to encapsulate that in the words of of health, happiness, and serenity. So, for you personally, how how do you define health? What does what does that word actually mean for you? Health. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that the way you've defined yourself, this. It's, it's very beautiful and very true and definitely ring, rings here and resonates here very much. Because 
happiness can only be there if and as health. And of course, it's easy to lean here now to um, maybe certain pre-made right, alternatives that I can fork out. But the reason I took this pause is because of where we have uh, started, maybe where the conversation opened up. So speaking about these different, we spoke about these different realms and all these realms, of course, they don't have existence of their own physical, subtle and causal. There are just vibrations, frequencies of the transcendent, eminent, and all there is is that transcendent. And all the rest is coming and going, appears as a as if having identity and existence of its own. So health, from that perspective and to my understanding, would be that constant balancing act. It's that balancing act. There's no such thing as a fixed end result. It's that balancing act. Balancing act where all these all this coming and going, what is constantly subject to life, right? Birth, decay, always, everything, everything that comes into being, if it came into being, it must go. Everything that is born to a seed, to an egg, or to a womb would have to die, wither, die. And yet all this coming and going, in all this coming and going, there is myself. There is the self as the only real and the only permanent. So the health is the recognition of that in all circumstances, even in illness, even in decay, even in death, because it is obviously manifesting as birth, as flourishment, as maturity, maturation. So maybe this is far-fetched definition of health taken outside of the context of how that term is used. But since you've asked me that as a personal question, I felt like responding to that from that very, very deeply personal, intimate understanding that health is nothing other than the state of affairs with my own self. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Happiness. I, everyone is in search of happiness, but perhaps many of us confuse happiness with pleasure. Um, could you just throw a couple of, of thoughts out there on that one? Well, it's, this is easy one because really the term we haven't spoken much about is bliss so bliss is all there is in bliss these beings have been conceived by bliss these beings have been sustained 
and into bliss these beings shall return as the ancient Upanishads declare. Happiness, when we speak of that English term, are reflective rays of that what is bliss. So the amount of happiness and the degree of happiness is the amount to which we live bliss of the self in any circumstances, in any experience. So that's what happiness really is. So again, again, it's not so much what we experience, because then we can be very easily tricked. And as you have said, happiness can very often be, or very often has been equated with pleasure, right? very often physical pleasure, emotional pleasure, psychological comfort. These are reflective rays. We don't want to deny them. There is certainly a degree of happiness in a sweet strawberry. <laughs> but it is the ultimate experience of happiness. It's that connection to that rising waves of bliss, which is the substratum upon which all experiences take place. So this is a perhaps a good reminder of what happiness is, at least to my understanding. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. And lastly, serenity. Um, I, I love this word and I think it's a very underused word. And we live in a world which is so crazy and, and fast and everything is, is assaulting our senses from all angles. Um, I think we have forgotten, so many of us, how to, how to take time to become serene. Would you like to comment on that? For me, serenity is, is, that, is that being able to be still and quiet without going into a panic, which I feel a lot of people do when they become still and quiet. They can't stand the quiet. Well, again, serenity here is inseparable from that what is the real nature of all our experience and all experiences rooted in being. So serenity is a natural state or it becomes a natural state when there is this dawn realization that it doesn't matter what happens at the surface level of affairs in terms of these waves that we experience at the surface level of the ocean of being. Because at the core of our being, it's stillness. And that stillness, when it is touched and known to whatever degree brings serenity. So in other words, serenity is a result of living direct communion with being. And that, that of course, is what transcends even the definition itself. 
because once that is experienced, once that is known, then the word itself, as it were, almost fails to deliver in full measure that what it really, really said to convey here in terms of what serenity really represents. Beautiful. Direct communion with being. I am so steaming that. <laughs> I, I love that. <laughs> Igor, thank you. I can't, I can't express my gratitude enough for, the, for you taking so much time and having this wonderful conversation. We really just skimmed the surface of so many of these extremely profound conversations. I hope maybe sometime in the future you'll come back and we can deepen this and go, go into some... Uh, explore some other ideas i'd love to acknowledge you for the work that you do um and honor you for it and thank you from the bottom of my heart thank you tatiana thank you it was a great great joy and as i said at the beginning it's a great privilege to share this and i'm also very very grateful for the openness and the willingness and readiness with which you so beautifully, beautifully opened up to this conversation and knowing that um, what we've talked about, of course, is each topic you know, can be, could be a single conversation. And thank you for doing this work as well. I think, it's very, I mean, knowing that this work is being done in London for that great city and for the world, and means a lot to me because I consider London to be my second homeland. It's where I spent the, well, the, some of the most colorful years of my adult life. So thank you. Thank you in turn. The privilege is all mine. Thank you. So, dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed that second installment um, with Igor as much as I did. This time we shifted the conversation a little away from health and we started talking about spirituality and spiritual practices. Again, a very superficial conversation. We could go so much deeper. I highly encourage you to check out Igor's um, website and his YouTube channel. He has a plethora of information there for you to go and have a look at very many discussions and discourses that answer very many questions. It's highly encourage you to, to go and investigate that. And I hope at some point he will come back and we can talk a lot more about the process of spiritual awakening, because I think that that, again, is something that isn't unrelated to health as, as that often has a, psychological and a physical component to it but that's something we can explore more at another time and I hope that this discussion was at least uh, a way in and, uh, and, and looking at some of these topics from a different perspective that may have been useful to you. And if it was useful to you and of interest please pass this information on to anyone else that you may think may find it of value and of course, please rate and review us over on iTunes, uh, the higher that we climb up um, or even maintain our position in the rankings, the, the better it is for us uh, to be able to get this information out to, to those who really need it. 
And of course, if you wish to receive exclusive access to extended show notes, please come over to londonheal.com and sign up and become a London Heal Insider. So you will access, um, get exclusive access to extended show notes for future episodes, as well as all the links to the future episodes. In this particular case, because we have a double episode, if you choose to sign up this week, we will also send um, you a copy of the extended show notes from the episode before. And so, my dear listeners, wishing you, as always, health, happiness, and serenity. <laughs>